0: From Radio Vermont, it's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. It's your show about the people, places, and the issues that matter
1: the most to you. Now here's your host, Dave Graham. Good morning, Vermont. It is uh, Monday, September the 7th, Labor Day. Happy Labor Day to all you folks out there. This is the day when Americans pause to have an end of summer cookout usually, but also to uh, honor our working men and women out there uh, a day that was created in the late 19th century and um, in order to essentially say that workers deserve a day of recognition of course back in those days many folks worked 12-hour days uh, 6 or 7 days a week didn't have vacation time or health insurance from their employers other benefits and so on a lot has changed for working people over the last uh, century and change and uh I'm glad to see uh the developments there. There's always more to do. Today we are going to be talking a lot on this program about the state of organized labor in Vermont and in the United States. We're going to be visiting with uh, Dave Van Dusen. He is president of the AFL-CIO uh, Umbrella Labor Organization here in Vermont. Uh, we'll be He'll be leading off. <clears throat> and then we're going to be talking to several other uh, labor leaders on the program this morning as well, just checking in with, for instance, uh, Omar Fernandez. He's with the American Postal Workers Association, and he uh, is going to be filling us in on how the workers are faring during this time when there is a lot of concern about the Postal Service, whether it is uh, keeping up with the necessary funding, whether it's keeping up with the service it needs to provide to Americans, whether it will be able to perform up to snuff with people leading a lot of mail-in ballots in the upcoming election because of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, Later on in the program, we'll be speaking with uh, folks from the Vermont NEA Teachers Union. They, of course, have a big project underway this week to get back to school tomorrow uh, in the face of this coronavirus pandemic. Also going to be visiting with with, uh, Steve Howard of the State Employees Association and with... um, a uh, leader from the united academics at uvm with uh, the faculty union where there's also a lot of concern about the coronavirus pandemic let's get right into it uh first off lead up uh is uh, dave van dusen he is president as i mentioned of the afl-cio of vermont i believe he's on the phone with us and uh, mr van dusen thank you so much for joining us this morning thank you dave happy labor day to you and to you i uh <clears throat> wanted to check in today and just uh, first from you get a, a general overview, uh, kind of a state of the of the labor movement in Vermont and nationally. I'm curious to know uh, where things stand in terms of recent court decisions on everything from agency fees to other things affecting organized labor. Also wanted to find out from you a little bit about uh, how uh, how things are are playing out here in Vermont. And, but but first, tell me the AFL-CIO obviously is uh, represents a uh, a range of uh of unions and, and uh, actually before we proceed i will say uh, just full disclosure wise folks uh, uh i have belongs to five labor unions in my life so i have certainly never been an opponent of organized labor by any stretch and uh, you can take that for what it's worth uh, i do think it's worth pausing to talk about all this stuff at least once a year and labor day seems like to be the appropriate day so um the uh <clears throat> anyway uh dave van dusen the uh, afl cio is an umbrella organization which represents uh in, or, or encompasses folks from the trades folks from public sector unions etc correct
0: you got it we represent the gamut of uh, working people across vermont everyone from town highway crews uh, all the way to nurses college professors building trades uh, you name it uh, the odds are we have them organized into the afl-cio
1: the uh, numbers of people uh, participating in uh, organized labor organizations unions has really been in decline in recent years um especially in the private sector. The public sector is still pretty strongly unionized. But why is it that that has happened in the private sector? Uh, And um, I would gather you want to slow down and reverse that skid. Sure. Now, in
0: Vermont, our numbers have uh, slightly ticked up in recent years, unlike most states. However, nationally, our numbers have been declining, and that's not an accident. This is... Uh, working on uh, a generation of attacks on organized labor where every in every conceivable way uh, our enemies uh, through the federal government have taken steps to try to weaken labor because they see us as a threat to the status quo now the most recent major attack was the Janus decision from the US Supreme Court which essentially uh, outlawed mandatory union dues and that was intended as a way to get at private Public sector unions uh, to try to drive down their numbers, with the notion being, why buy the cow if you can get the milk for free? So if you are still get represented by a union, but don't have to pay your fair share to support those efforts, the thought was that people would uh, have a mass exodus from labor. But we have not seen that across New England. Our numbers have actually ticked up as far as union membership goes in organized public sector shops, uh, and in Vermont, we did not lose. Any measurable amount of members uh, through that Janus decision, and that is because our members see the important work that we are doing, and they are us. There is not a separation between the worker and the union. The union is the workers organized together. So that that attack on us uh, was not particularly successful, but there, every day, new Labor Board decisions uh, come out under the Trump administration through his appointees, which further seek to weaken our rights. So this is a war. It's a long war. It's not a short war. And we intend to come out on top in the end. But we have a number of organizing efforts underway right now, both internal organizing and external organizing, uh, some of which I'm not at liberty to discuss at the moment but I have uh, nothing but a uh, belief that we are we are growing our power and we're going to continue to grow our power in order to make sure that working, working people are put first during this crisis, during this pandemic, during the economic downturn and after.
2: What,
1: what is the role of organized labor in responding to the pandemic and uh, trying to keep employers uh, responding well in this uh, really unprecedented situation we on every
0: level both at the federal level state level and local level and with individual private employers uh, labor has been organizing to address the needs of the community during the pandemic so i'll give you a a very uh, easy uh, quick example is i'm happy to report that we just came one of our unions abstinence just came to a tentative agreement with the burlington schools for four of the they have four contracts there for support staff and in that uh new tentative agreement that was ratified uh, a couple days ago uh, there's a clause whereby the union will sign a side sign a side letter with the school district guaranteeing that for the life of the pandemic all school children in the city of burlington will receive face masks uh, provided by the school district so we see ourselves as not just in a role of defending our jobs, but also advocating for the public good. Early on during the pandemic, the AFL-CIO of Vermont advocated for a moratorium on evictions and foreclosures. We advocated for, uh, before these things were implemented, we advocated for free uh, child care for essential workers. We advocated for uh, children and families to be provided food from the school districts. Uh, to get through the pandemic. And, and we're happy to say that many, uh, most of those immediate crisis demands uh, were met. And, and the state of Vermont did a good initial job addressing uh, the pandemic. So when we look at other unions, uh, many different uh, unions, uh, I think of the United Electrical Workers, Local 203 uh, in Burlington, who advocated for crisis pay for the members at the co-op up there, the grocery store. They were successful in that, and they've, uh, they're have they getting paid a livable wage. But it shouldn't take a public health crisis for workers to get a livable wage, uh, in my uh, estimation. One of the things that the pandemic has shown us is the weakness of our social system. The fact that we had to fight to get extended paid family medical leave and additional sick days, paid sick days off, uh, and crisis pay for, for many workers, uh, tells me that... These are programs that should have been in place long before the pandemic. So we need to be resilient as a community. This won't be the last crisis we face. So our work is cut out for us, and we need to advocate both for our members and the general uh, good of the public at large, uh, not just during the pandemic, but for the longer-term economic crisis, which is emerging.
1: You mentioned the Janus decision, the uh, uh, agency Fee decision as uh, one in which it really marked a strong attack on organized labor. I did want to get back to that for uh, in one case, which was you, you said that in Vermont and in northern New England it had not really had all that much of a negative impact on the labor movement. What about nationally? Is this is the picture different if you look at the whole country? I, th- I think
0: if you were to look at the major public uh, employee unions, and of course that was a direct attack on public employee unions. Um, You will see that it did not have the devastating effects uh, that the right wing, that the anti-union forces of capital were trying to were trying to elicit. Uh, Largely, labor has retained its memberships uh, across the board. In a number of states, that has ticked down, uh, sure, and and that's a problem. But it was not the existential threat uh, that some feared it was going to be, because the way to mitigate uh, that issue is to be a good union, to be rank-and-file driven, to involve members in the decision-making process, and uh, to aggressively advocate for the interest of the worker. And for the most part, our unions across, our AFLCI unions across the country have done that. But they're chipping away. Every day they try to chip away more and more of the rights that we have if you look at the union density levels that we had in the 1950s you know when we're talking 30 40% and now you look at national uh, statistics that have labor uh, hovering around uh, perhaps just below 10% it shows how uh, several generations of anti union administrations uh, frankly uh, despite the window dressing both republican and democratic administrations uh, you can see that that uh, that there's challenges and labor has tried to overcome those challenges by organizing new workers and i think we're entering a new era of organizing more progressive unionism more social unionism whereby the unions not just advocating for their members interests but also for the interests of the general public and i see that as the future of,
2: of labor
1: and talk to me a little bit about what some of the individual bites have been you you, you know you, it sounds like there have been perhaps not not as uh not as large scale an attack as the Janus decision decision uh very many times that you i'm sure you're thankful for that but it sounds like maybe there have been some smaller steps and so on that have been taken that have diminished the role of uh of unions in in america's working in americans working lives what have some of those steps been and uh, have there been individual bills in congress uh other steps the the executive branch has taken and um and then we'll talk about, I think, an agenda to uh, yeah. to reverse them and maybe make improvements. Sure. Well, one of the most uh,
0: serious attacks uh, last year, give or take, the Trump administration, through a rule tra- change, uh, mandated that it was now illegal for home health care workers, organized in various states, uh, to even have voluntary union dues uh, subtracted from their paycheck. So already with Janice and a previous decision that was specific to home health care workers, uh, it was already ruled that mandatory union dues um were not were not allowed by uh Supreme Court decisions. And this rule changed that even if you sign a card and voluntarily say I am a member of the union, uh this this rule would prevent that money from coming out of your check. Now in Vermont we have about 8,000 home healthcare workers organized into uh, ASME Local 4802. So what that rule would have done is it would have mandated that uh, union rep go around and individually meet with 8,000 different uh, workers across the state to ask that they uh, set up, a, you know, some sort of dues-paying arrangement. That that's not practical. Uh, the scale of how that would work in a state like California that has tens and tens of thousands of home health care workers, uh, it, 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 it's not practical. And it was designed specifically to destroy those unions and make sure home health care workers uh, who are doing God's work during the pandemic and who are not paid nearly enough of what they are worth uh, to try to make it so they don't have a union. Now, here in Vermont, we were lucky. Uh, not just luck, there's politics involved. We have a very good Attorney General, T.J. Donovan, who reviewed that rule change and determined that because our home health care workers are paid uh, through a third-party heiress, that the rule change would not apply to us. So we dodged a bullet on that, and, and we are pleased to uh, have T.J. Donovan as our Attorney General, and we're pleased to endorse him in the selection as well. But in states like California, this is potentially devastating. And it's these things which on the one hand you could uh, try to argue with a straight face that it is uh, somehow uh, fair or reasonable, but they're clearly aimed at nothing less than destroying uh, the Union. The powers that be in this country, um, uh, the capitalist class and and, uh, largely the political class that is supported by them, uh, they don't want workers to have a say. They don't want us to be able to advocate for increases to minimum wage. They don't want us to fight for a liberal wage. They don't want universal health care. They don't want workers to have a say in the conditions on their shop floor. They want to go back to the Robert baron era. They want to go back to a time when a few people dictate to all of us what our working lives are going to be and what the conditions under which we labor are going to be. Uh, that is not acceptable. That is a system that supported uh, child labor. It supported uh, 16-hour days. And we're not going back. And we're ready to fight tooth and nail uh, to not just hold on to what we have, to not just re- seek to retain those elements of FDR's New Deal, which were a benefit society, but to go well beyond that and, frankly, to fight for a Green New Deal to address these economic uh,
1: challenges that we're facing presently the uh, the labor movement I, I think you can, you can see on the ground kind of some of the results of a diminished labor movement uh, just for instance uh, very very uh, many fewer people now have are retiring with defined benefit pensions uh, than uh, used to be the case. It used to be pretty normal in a company you retired and you were guaranteed. A monthly payment of some kind between your retirement and your your death, uh, mm-hmm. and these days uh, the companies have all wanted to go to sort of uh, the defined contribution plans, uh, 401ks, or really to nothing, just uh, no no retirement plan at all. Um, at the same time, there are other benefits that are now being advocated for, for instance, paid family leave, um, and perhaps even subsidized child care because of the the huge economic adjustment of, of having uh, uh, single parents and two-income couples yeah. both working and that sort of thing. Uh, what, what about progress on, on those fronts, on the real practical results of what a labor movement might bring? Well, look, last year, let's talk about Vermont. Last year we fell one vote
0: short of establishing a version of Essentially, it was uh, the paid family medical leave bill, but what it sugared out, it was a paternity-maternity leave bill. And we were one vote short of overriding the governor's veto on that. We made significant progress for last year uh, with full-on support from organized labor, getting towards a little wage of $15 an hour. I believe the, the final bill has uh, got us up to twelve fifty five over time. So we've seen successes. We've seen wins. We see how we can do this, and we do this by organizing and growing our power, uh, not just through lobbyists, a couple of people with ties on in the Statehouse. We do this from the bottom up by mobilizing our members, educating our members. I mean, AFL-CIO alone has 10,000 members across the state of Vermont. Uh, Other labor unions have, in total, uh, significantly more members uh, across the state. We have the ability, we have the numbers to make change. The question is, do we have the political will within uh, the different unions, leaderships, to really go all in on that change? I mean, if we continue to just look at our narrow self-interest, meaning, you know, we need another 25 cents an hour in Union Shop X, that's good. We have to do that for that specific shop but uh, the power isn't going to be just there it's going to be an advocating for a total rethink of how we organize society Uh, we need to have a new social contract we need a new approach to a a new deal we need to expand our democratic uh, rights we need to fight every day for a labor program that impacts every single working class person in vermont and beyond and we can do this but it's it's a bit of a culture shift. Uh, the AFL-CIO is pretty far down that road already. We've had a new leadership here called United for uh, the last year. And we are absolutely committed to, to fighting for that kind of broad social program. So our partners in other unions have started to come along. And we believe that in the next few years, especially during the economic crisis where we're seeing unemployment levels akin to the Great Depression, uh it's not just a possibility, it's a necessity. So organizing on the ground, in the communities, in the workshops, that is where we're going to grow our power, and that's where we need to be fighting every day.
1: Talk to me a little bit about uh, a legislative agenda. Let's start at the federal level. What what would be tops um, on the wish list for the AFL-CIO nationally? That would be the HEROES Act. We need to make sure
0: that working people are taken care of uh, during the pandemic. We need to make sure that there are things like crisis pay in place on a national scale. Uh, We need to make sure that social benefits are secure for the duration of the pandemic and beyond. Uh, That has passed the House. It is stalled in the Republican Senate and it is also not supported by the current president that we have. So that is tops on our priority list. Uh, then, if we were to look at the state of Vermont, we've done a decent job um, with the initial response to the pandemic. But what we haven't heard a lot of from our legislators, uh, certainly not enough of, is how we're going to have a new deal like economic recovery. And that's going to mean raising revenue, uh, raising taxes on the richest people in Vermont, recouping uh, money from the wealthiest Vermonters uh, that they saved through the Uh, Trump tax cuts. We need to implement uh, further taxation on the sale of luxury homes. Uh, The list goes on. And our legislators for the most part have been quietly talking about tightening the belt. They have not been talking about uh, these progressive uh, approaches to climbing out of this uh, emerging economic depression. So we are very disappointed uh, that Democratic Party leadership has not committed to a new deal uh we are very uh, excited that uh one of the candidates that we back for governor uh david zuckerman has and that's part of the vision that he articulates uh, but what we cannot do is we cannot make cuts and we cannot tighten the belt and we cannot reduce the benefits that working people rely on and the services they rely on when they need them most. And, and unfortunately, uh, right now we recognize that there's a fight ahead of us to, to get more folks to see clearly what the interest uh, is of the average working person, which of course is the great majority of Vermonters.
1: One counter-argument you hear to uh, this idea of uh, basically taxing the rich more is that the rich will move out of state. Uh, what do you say to that? Well, i found somebody to show me some statistics that even uh,
0: makes that uh, a real argument. Now, when the snelling tax uh, taxes went in place uh, years ago, did we see an exodus of wealthy people leaving in the state? No. Most people, uh, wealthy people that come to Vermont, frankly, they come to Vermont because of the quality of life. We have a very good quality of life because because we have a decent social program. And if we're going to maintain a quality of life, if we're going to maintain uh, those core aspects of what it means to be a Vermonter, then we're going to have to ask and demand uh, that those who have more uh, pay more. To, to address the needs of the great majority, which is working people, so I, I think it's a total fabrication the notion that uh, the wealthy would we move out. Uh, and further, we could do much more with uh, when when the pandemic is over, with uh, capturing revenue from uh, the ski industry and the tourist industry. Those are things that we need to be looking at over the long term. So there's resources there. There's money there. And frankly, if we were just, uh, we would get tens of millions of dollars in new revenue if we were just to recapture the Trump tax cut money uh, that impact the wealthiest five percent of the monarchs, and that's money that they are already paying, for that matter. So, I don't want to see any more burdens placed on working class Vermonters. I feel that we pay enough taxes already. I think that we have to be looking at corporations, and we have to be looking at the wealthiest, mush. and that's what we need to do. It's not a request. It's not a suggestion. It's demand. This is uh, the crisis we're in, and there's no excuse for not making those who have millions and billions of dollars to pound up their share.
1: So you think back to the Eisenhower years of the 1950s, our, our tax rates were significantly higher on the wealthiest Americans. Uh, organized labor was much stronger as a percentage of the workforce. Um, mm-hmm. what, what accounts for the shift since then? What what counts
0: for the
1: steps? Did you say? Yeah, I mean it's it's changed a lot. We don't have. I mean, organized labor isn't anywhere near as strong as it was back in the '50s, uh, and uh, our tax rates are much uh, less progressive, shall we say, on a nationwide basis. Yeah, they. Yes, and let's not forget that Eisenhower
0: um, was a Republican,
1: and there was a time,
0: (laughs) and people wouldn't remember that. The Republican Party, the Eisenhower's Republican Party, was, out, was outwardly uh, pro-union uh, in the day. So the Republican Party has shifted drastically to the right. Under the Trump administration, uh, it, it teeters on neo-fascism with their goals and aspirations. And they are rapidly anti-union. <clears throat> that shift started under the Reagan administration, where the tax rates for the wealthiest people among us was drastically reduced. And has continued straight along through Democratic administrations, such as under Bill Clinton, uh, then with George Bush, and now with Donald Trump. So our Republican Party has has, uh, and I'm not speaking about the Vermont Republican Party, but the national Dem- uh, Pro- Republican Party has has shifted to a, to an extreme right wing position. And well, meanwhile, well, our Democratic Party has shifted to the right as well. I mean the the Bill Clinton.
1: Dave, i got to go, unfortunately. I'd love to continue this, but uh, we're about out of time for this segment. Dave Van Dusen of the AFL-CIO Vermont, uh, thank you very much for joining me. Solidarity and happy Labor Day.
3: Are you itching to get out, explore our great state? Don your mask and come to the Warren's store in the beautiful Mad River Valley. The store is open to a limited number of customers upstairs and down. Dilly takeout by phone or window, but you can finally choose beer, wine, chips, etc. No appointment needed upstairs. Well-stocked with cool summer clothing, cards, candles, bags, and jewelry, puzzles and toys for all ages, art supplies, books, and interactive learning games. Are your kids bored and driving you crazy? Bring them to the Warren's store. Practicing all safe protocols. Masks required.
0: Now back to the Dave Graham Show on WDEB, FM, and AM.
1: Continuing with our Labor Day special this morning, uh interesting conversation of the first half hour, I thought, with Dave Van Dusen, the president of the Vermont AFL-CIO, and uh, we're going to be speaking with a number of other union members and union leaders from around Vermont to just sort of get the pulse of the labor movement here on this Labor Day. Labor Day, of course, a holiday uh, dedicated to the American worker started in the late 19th century and one which uh, I think a lot of folks regard as a chance to have a late summer cookout but uh be uh, these days, but uh, one of the reasons we have Labor day off one of the reasons we have weekends off <laughs> is because we 've had a labor movement in this country to promote those things and to try to get workers uh, treated a little fairly a little more fairly over time and uh, one of the uh, labor folks we wanted to bring in this morning is with the American Postal Workers Union postal workers of course much in the news lately as uh, has their employer been the u s Postal service really uh, getting a lot of attention lately and a lot of worry because of um, issues connected with its leadership really the uh, person appointed by the Trump administration to administer the Postal Service uh, has been uh, maybe not as friendly to the idea that uh, the Postal Service needs to keep up with its traditional work as uh previous leaders of the postal service and of course uh, the stakes are huge right now because we are heading into an election in which the postal service is expected to be leaned on as never before by folks um, trying to vote by mail-in ballot Uh, in the face of this pandemic people not wanting to line up on election day and their masks and their six feet of distance and all that instead they say let's vote by mail and uh, the president has been highly critical of that idea and so there's real concern that The Postal Service, if the Postal Service is unable to perform uh, as well as it can to get those mail-in ballots in timely to election officials counting them, will that be, what will that be? We'll we'll talk to Omar Fernandez about that. He is the head of the uh, American Postal Workers Union uh, Division here in Vermont. I believe he's based in White River Junction. Omar Fernandez, thank you very much for joining us this morning.
2: Hey Dave, how's it going? Thank you so much for inviting me. I appreciate
1: it. Glad to do it. And so uh, give us a, give us a, first off some facts and figures about your own organization. First, do I have the name right? Is it the American Postal Workers Union?
2: Yes, sir. It's the American Postal Workers Union. Um, it's a name, AFL-CIO, and uh, mm-hmm. we do have a branch here in Vermont. We cover about 231 offices, and then there's about are other uh, organizations in Vermont under the American Postal Workers Union, and those are basically in uh, either plants or larger offices.
1: And are, are postal workers pretty much all members of the unions, or are there some who are not, or how does that break down?
2: Um, the way it works, and I honestly, I think it's a blessing. Uh, when the Janus uh, decision came out, it didn't affect us at all. We've always been a union that takes care of everyone, no matter what. It is disappointing um, that people uh, decide not to pay these because of something that happens within union or whatever, they don't like the way something came out or something like that. But basically, when they're doing that, they're just taking away their own voice. Um, they can no longer go to meetings or things like that, which is kind of crazy. But we absolutely will take care of uh, everyone in the Postal Service, no matter who you are, according to your craft, no matter what.
1: Do you feel as though over time in say the last ten or 20 years I don't know how long you've been involved in this but uh, have conditions and wages and general treatment of postal workers in the United States of America been improving disimproving staying about the same how are we how are we doing these days in the term in terms of labor and the post office <clears throat>
2: Well, uh, well, I'll tell you this, there's two groups. There's the people, which is the important group, and then there's the politicians, which are right now the ones with the power because the first group doesn't recognize the power that they have yet. But when it comes to the people, people love us. According to the Gallup poll, um, we're the highest uh, federal agent um, out there. Uh, We got 91% on this last Gallup poll, and we know he's been the highest. Now, when it comes to the politicians, these guys have been after us since the 70s uh we had a wildcat strike i don't know if you know our history but there was a wildcat strike where uh postal service uh finally became unionized and the people finally rose up and said enough is enough we need to get paid a dignified wage a living wage and that's when things started after that since then um, politicians have little by little been trying to um, privatize the post office because because of the people, the postal service does make money. And the politicians, no matter what party they are, I'm sorry to, for anybody out there that's disappointed in hearing that, but no, no matter what party they're in, both of them have been after the postal service. Um, and I don't know if you want me to go in, into the law that really started bringing things uh, to a head. Uh, or do you want to wait till later to talk about that?
1: Well, well, now you have me curious. What was the law that really started bringing things to a head?
2: It's called the P-A-E-A. Um, it's very funny how they named these laws, the Postal Enhancement Act. Uh, there, there could be a word that I'm missing there. supposedly it was put in there to help the post office out. And there is one part of the, uh, that law that does help out the post office, and a lot of people don't know this, um, but that law says, that the postal service cannot provide any service to any company no matter if it's Amazon FedEx uh, UPS DHL cannot provide any services to any of those guys without at least breaking even we do not lose money on any of those deals because it is absolutely illegal because of that law we must break even at least and if somebody Hmm. saying, "Well, what do you mean this Take their money. does it as they go that's the way we used to do it um but if it wasn't for that law we would have an operational profit in the last six years so i want to repeat that again if it wasn't for that law To discover that we weren't good, that we're not doing our job, that we're inefficient and all that. What they ended up finding out is that we actually overpaid already our retirement. And some people say it's seventy-five uh, billion dollars. Others say a hundred billion dollars. Um, I don't know the exact figures because depending on what you read it, when you look at it, it's anywhere from seventy-five billion to seventy billion to hundred billion dollars that we overpaid already in our retirement before two thousand and six. That money. If we still had that money in our coffers, we would have been fine to carry over through, during this pandemic. I, I was sitting in Congress one time and in front of the Homeland uh, Committee uh, down in D.C. just as an observer, and the chairman, I don't know, I don't remember if he needed a recess or anything like that, but the chairman just nonchalantly said, yeah, all that money is gone. And my ears put up because I'm like, wait a minute, that money is supposed to be set aside for our uh, retirement. Guy says, "Oh no, we put it in the general fund, and that money is all gone down now." So it's like they're using us as a giant piggy bank, and they don't even care to even say those kind of things out loud. But it's just incredible to me. It's it's amazing, and I just want to let the people know that that is what's going on. the The money that we're, that's being lost in the postal service, it's legislati- legis- legislatively done. Politically done, it's done by Congress to make it look that oh, the only thing that's going to make the postal service be more efficient is to privatize it. That is absolutely incorrect.
1: It's really interesting to me because I I wonder if there's some parallel in the works. Related to Social Security, and I'm curious to get your thoughts about this. Of course, the uh, president has decided he wants to get rid of the payroll tax to support Social Security. The payroll tax revenues are account for about 90 percent of the Social Security system's annual payout for seniors and for disabled folks, and. Uh, the, uh, and the president is saying oh don't worry I'm not I'm not defunding Social Security <laughs> I'm just uh, gonna pay for it out of the general fund and of course the general fund we now know is about more than three trillion dollars in debt so uh, how, how solid that is as a source of this payment is uh, I think an open question or maybe not even an open question anymore um, do, do you see something similar going on here
2: Absolutely, I do. I mean, I really think that, I mean, I don't understand why whenever it comes to the people, all of a sudden we don't have the money to do anything. But when this whole pandemic started, a trillion dollars went to all the guys that didn't need the money immediately and instantly. And then all of the, and all we got was $1,200. That's it. But I mean, they've always, if you remember, Dave. I mean, I, I, as a kid, I've always remembered them saying that social security we're overpaying into it it's an entitlement Uh, we need to stop it and all that kind of stuff and and I think this is one of the things that they're doing and then I I mean I haven't really read into what uh, the president said about that but I think yeah we don't have to pay that social security now but later on in the year or next year we have to pay back anything that we didn't pay now if, if I heard that correctly but I'm not too sure about that part
1: yeah, well, uh, that's supposedly going to come out of the general fund, as I mentioned, and, uh, man, oh man, I, I don't know where that money is, frankly. It's all just IOUs at this point, but, uh, I wanted to ask you to talk to us a little bit about, uh, your thoughts on the a very important mission the postal service is being we expect will be put to in, in in over the next couple months and that is uh getting ballots from people who are doing mail-in voting many for the first time to uh election officials to be counted uh what do you what are your thoughts there
2: well i one thing that i definitely want to let our sisters and brothers out there um, know that are definitely helping us out by using the postal service is that don't worry about your, uh, ballots getting to where they need to get to. Um, now, we are understaffed. They are taking machines out of the, uh, uh, out of the plants and, and makes things go slower and we need more people to get this job done. But I'll tell you this, it's one way that I like to compare the Postal Service. It is almost like a, it's like a tube. When it goes in one end, it absolutely will go out the other end. And, and I will tell you this, some ballots do actually say ballots on them Or they have like the painting of a flag on there And that lets us know that it's a ballot We absolutely will take that ballot And immediately take it to where it needs to go to If we get it manually to We take it to where it needs to go to To make sure it leaves the plant that day Because a lot of times the ballots do run through the machine. Sometimes, because of addresses or somebody wrote something weird or something like that, it'll go to the manual section of the plant. We'll see it. I, I do, uh, part of my work is to work in that manual part of the uh, plant. We'll see it, immediately see it, take a look at it and get it to wherever it needs to get to so that it leaves the plant immediately, immediately. We we'll, don't... We don't play with the ballots. It's very sacred to us. I mean, all all the mail is very sacred to us. We literally take an oath before we start working for the Postal Service. But as soon as we see that ballot, we understand how important it is. We take a look at that zip code. Um, we look at the first three to get it to the right section, and then look at the last two to make sure it gets into the right box. And that's all we do. And it goes out the door.
1: And and the... Um do you have any, any suggestions for folks sort of like how long before the November 3rd election should they get their ballot in the mail if they want to make sh- absolutely sure it gets to the voting, uh, to, the, to the vote counting center, whether it's a city-town clerk's office here in Vermont or uh, county offices in other parts of the country? Uh, uh, are, are, is there any sort of standard there?
2: Um, I will say that the earlier you get it in, the better. Uh, mostly because there's going to be a large volume, and again, we are understaffed. That's why a lot of times people have to wait in line um, in these uh, offices. But the earlier you get it in, the better. Definitely um, do your research, do all those kind of things and see who you want to vote for, but absolutely get it in there early. me, personally, this is me personally, I will take it directly to uh, my clerk's office because it's only like two minutes away, um, just just so I can make sure that it gets there. But it will absolutely uh, get there. The sooner you get it in there, the better you, it, it is for all of us.
1: Well, is that the gold standard then? Uh, should, should others think about taking it personally to their clerk's offices?
2: If they feel comfortable uh, to doing that, then I would. Uh But sometimes the option just isn't there. And if you don't have that option, then the earlier you put it in, the better. Um, that way we can get it out there. Um, now I will tell you this, sometimes we uh, have people come into the plant. If we see that there's a lot of volume coming in, we will get people coming into the plant uh, from other offices to make sure that everything is uh, processed when those uh, mailing ballots come in. So, I mean, I know I said what I just said, but I'm just like, you know what? We get that mail out anyways. It goes out. It does go out. So whatever you're comfortable with, that's what I'm saying you should do.
1: All right. Hey, we have a listener calling in. Folks, uh, 244-1777 is the local number in Waterbury, one uh, 877 8255 or 291-TALK if you are calling from farther away. Let's go to uh, Forbes in East Corinth. Good morning, Forbes. Good morning. How are you? Doing doing uh, well. How are you? With the postal service, uh, the mechanism all in place,
2: how did UPS and FedEx ever get into business?
1: Omar, what do you think?
2: Say that again, how did UPS or FedEx?
1: Yeah, with the postal service, you know, already standing up ever since the birth of this country, really, and uh, already in place. How did UPS and FedEx get into business?
2: Because we let them. We gave them our part of our work. Um, like I told you, there have been they have been trying to privatize us for the longest time. And so back in the day, they came out with this law and said, which is kind of weird to me, because we're a federal um, agency. They said, oh, the Postal Service has too much power. They're a monopoly, so we have to give some of that to other services. And we actually saved FedEx at one time because we gave them all our air mail. Actually, now, even though we do the last mile of every single one of the uh, other services, even if you pay that premium uh, money, uh, when it comes to uh, getting everything on a plane, we we use either UPS or FedEx. And that's hmm. actually how they stay afloat. The because I'll tell you this: a lot of people don't know this either. But what UPS, FedEx, DHL, and anybody else that does uh, mail, what they do in a year, the postal service does in two weeks.
1: Um, and and the uh, Forbes does that answer your question?
2: Yeah, it it, it does. Um,
1: it just looked like it uh, revenue size. Uh, it kind of eroded the,
2: the position of the. <laughs> Postal service.
1: Interesting, uh, interesting perspective there. Thanks for the call, Forbes. I appreciate that. Uh, and Omar, do you feel as as though the um, do you feel as though these, these private companies uh, are, are are they looking to take even a bigger bite out of the postal service, or uh, are things sort of in a in a in a state of uh, kind of steady state right now, or where are we with all that?
2: I mean, absolutely, these guys are trying to take a bigger bite of uh, the Postal Service. Um, But here's the thing, when they're not, it's not going to happen, but if they did, what they do now is that in order for them to even deliver anything, um, and they don't give it to us for the last mile, what they do is they charge the customer way more money to get it to your door. So... In, in rural areas it's even worse because what they do is they only um, deliver to certain areas at a certain times and i want to say one thing that uh, Mr. Forbes said um, about uh, money coming away uh, it is true the postal service the money is going down but we are still taking care of things because the people are still using us the people use us more than any of the other guys Because all of the other guys, they charge so much money to do the same thing that we do, you know. And again, even if you're you're, you're paying for FedEx or all those other guys to deliver your mail, if you're not paying the highest price, the people that are delivering that mail or that box or that package is the United States Postal Service anyways. We take care of the last miles of every single one of those companies.
1: All right. Well, Omar Fernandez, it's about all the time we have. Really appreciate you joining me this morning and helping to shed some some light on uh, how all that works. All those letters get to your house every day, and I appreciate it very much. Happy Labor Day to you.
2: Happy Labor Day, Dave. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it.
1: All righty. Heading into the top of the hour break for some CBS News here. Uh, We'll be back.
3: Are you itching to get out, explore our great state? Don your mask and come to the Warren store in the beautiful Mad River Valley. The store is open to a limited number of customers upstairs and down. Dilly takeout by phone or window, but you can finally choose beer, wine, chips, etc. No appointment needed upstairs. Well-stocked with cool summer clothing, cards, candles, bags, and jewelry, puzzles and toys for all ages, art supplies, books, and interactive learning games. Are your kids bored and driving you crazy? Bring them to the Warren store. Practicing all safe protocols. Masks required.
0: News Radio, WDEV, FM, and AM. Now back to the Dave Graham Show.
1: We are back into our second half hour on our Labor Day special, looking at the uh, state of the American labor movement, the labor movement in Vermont. And we wanted to spend a couple more minutes with uh, Omar Fernandez of the American... uh, postal workers union uh, he is uh, based here in vermont with the postal uh, employees Work, workers union and uh, he just he, he wanted to make one more uh, short announcement before we let him go omar uh, you have the floor
2: thank you so much Dave. i just want um, everyone to call your senator the phone number you're going to want to use is 833-924-0085 one more time 833 924 085. Just put in your zip code, the system will automatically connect you to your senator and just make sure that you tell them to pass the uh, HEALS Act that's uh, being held up in the Senate right now. And also, please be out on the lookout. Uh, we are going to be doing informational rallies in all the different zip codes, the 054s, 056, uh 058, 035, all those places, um, so that the people know, can know exactly what's going on with the Postal Service. And we would love for you to come out and uh, rally with us and uh, have some pizza with us and all those kind of good things. So... Thank you so much for
1: your time, Dave. Alright, thank you, Omar. Very good. Omar Fernandez of the American Postal Workers Union with a couple more words for you there, folks, about contacting your senators and urging passage of the Heroes Act, which is uh, passed by the House, uh, something like two, three months ago now and, uh, <clears throat> has been uh, held up in the Senate since then. Uh, let's uh let's shift gears now we're going to go to another uh person involved in organized labor in Vermont and uh, uh, uh one of the one of our key unions here in the state of course is the uh Vermont chapter of the National Education Association Vermont NEA and uh Tom Payer is a uh, is a teacher and a member of the Vermont NEA uh, comes highly recommended from NEA leadership as uh, someone who can articulate the union's issues quite well and of course uh, one big issue for the uh, Vermont NEA right now is that uh, tomorrow is the first day of school around the state, and we are looking to uh, Get, uh, education relaunched amid this coronavirus pandemic. So lots to talk about here. Uh, Tom, uh, pronounce your last name for me. I want to make sure I have it right.
4: Hey, Dave. Uh, yep. I'm just about right. So pay your. I like to tell my kids, uh, pay your bills.
1: Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's an important thing to do and, uh, appreciate you joining me on the program here this morning. Now, you are a teacher where? Uh,
4: yeah. Thanks for having me too. Um, I'm a teacher at Winooski Middle High School. I teach mathematics there, uh, going
1: mm-hmm. my ninth year here. Wow, okay. And uh, are you a uh, an officer in the local union chapter up there, or where, where do you staying there?
4: Yeah, I've held a couple positions. Um, I was the president of my local chapter last year. I've done a couple rounds as chief negotiator, um, and all around just whatever the union needs at any moment.
1: Yeah, oh, okay. So tell me about your own personal case here. School starts up tomorrow. Are you going to be mostly online, mostly uh, in the classroom, some half and half? Or what's what's happening on your front?
4: Yeah, over here um, we are working with a hybrid model, and I'm you know, fairly certain that the majority of the state is doing so, although some schools are opening full-time and others are uh, fully remote. Um, but for me, it's two days in the class, two days out, um, and then one day. Uh, that Wednesday day right in the middle where we're coming together, working on PD, trying to make this all work out.
1: Yeah. Wow. Um, and, and, of course, uh, is this going to be sort of similar to what, what you were doing for most of last spring?
4: Um, you know, last spring was a total anomaly. Um, we, on a, on a dime, had to totally change everything that we were doing with very little experience. Um so last year was, I mean, the spring was unique, and it was it was just basically um, meeting student needs and community needs um, at that ground level. Like, we really had to make sure that students were being fed, that they had safety, that services were still uh, being provided for them. Now this year, it's different. I mean, um, we've had some time leading up to the year to talk about what instruction's going to be, um, how we make online learning uh, an experience that's rewarding for everybody involved Um, unfortunately over the summer things were so up in the air in terms of making decisions about what was going to happen with schools that I would say not enough time was dedicated to really talking about what the school day would be like for uh, teachers students and and parents involved but um, going into this year I'm feeling pretty confident that uh, we've got a model that's drastically different and we're going to be able to succeed and, and have some really great outcomes
1: in, in terms of math instruction you, since you're a math teacher i'm kind of curious uh would would you say that that works uh where does that rank among the different classes kids take in school versus you know social studies uh, language arts uh i don't know uh chemistry and biology um et cetera in terms of its uh amenability to being taught online
4: um i mean you know we're we're all in the same boat um And the fact that you know we've got really strong and important content um not even just content but skills that students experience in our classrooms so you know the loss of the in-person instruction and when i say in-person instruction i really mean that ability to work in a group um, to share ideas across the table with each other and to even pass a piece of paper and say look at what i've just drawn and, and can you make sense of this with me um you know we're definitely hurting for that and that's across the board um you know, this year it's gonna be important that all of us just learn how to really build those relationships, um, both in like a really structured in-person, I mean, students sitting six feet apart from each other kind of atmosphere, and also online where, you know, it, it, it's it's difficult because we're entering into students' homes um, in the online environment, and we have to be super respectful of that and acknowledge that um, some students may not want to show their faces on the screen, um, and that's okay. Um, but we just really got to use the time that we have in person to support what's going to happen online. Now, math instruction, um, for me, it, it is an interactive experience, um, so it's, it's not simply just sit down, plug and play. And adapting to that is going to be difficult, but like I said, we've had some time to plan about it, and we have embedded time throughout the year um, to work with each other to really make this something special.
1: And, and to talk to me a little bit about your your own uh, skill level, experience, et cetera. I mean, I, the teachers were all over the place last March when all of this started. In terms of their ability to and experience with cl- Google Classroom, with Zoom, with a, with the other uh, the other uh, software and so on that was being used for on- has been used for online instruction. Uh, w- were you a wizard this stuff, or did you have a steep learning curve? Or tell me about that.
4: Uh, yeah, I mean, I will say it's a, it is definitely a steep learning curve, and when you really dig into it, I mean, there's an app for just about everything, and it's incredibly it's overwhelming, and the learning of the technology in and of itself is an experience, uh, not to say the continuing of learning a subject. Um, so, you know, what we've learned from the experience is that we should just keep it simple, um, focus on one or two things that are going to work, use them well, and um, and 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 just know that we got to have grace in this in all of it um, as we normally do, uh, but but more so this time around that that we are going to make mistakes, um, but that we have time and experience to to rapidly change and grow from those mistakes. Um, and I think that's really where the union comes into play um, in terms of local districts um, having a strong union and having that ability to uh, share in community and and uh, you know help each other out and provide um, both experiences and uh, just hard um, software um, with each other. Uh, You know, having that structure already laid out is going to make this a much smoother transition.
1: And uh, talk to me a little bit about, have there been any sort of pushes coming to shoves between the union and the administration as the administration says, okay, we're in this COVID era, we're doing a lot of stuff online, you guys have to do X, Y, and Z, and the union says, well, wait a minute, Uh, we don't want to do X, Y, and Z, we want to do A, B, and C. Any any issues that have really uh, brought you close to loggerheads here?
4: I mean, yeah, it's it's a manifestation of, like just an experience that has happened over and over again um really in any job where you have collective action um you know there are um, administrators and uh, those folks at the state level who have an impression of what life is like inside of the classroom um but at the end of the day it's teachers who really know like what's going to happen and exactly how a classroom runs and what's what's realistic and what's not. Um, you know, we always have in our minds, what is the experience for the student? Like what how is the student going to going to exist in this? I mean we're we're not talking about numbers on a page or a clear list of protocols. We're talking about the messy reality of being in a classroom um and, and working with different relationships and the tensions and the joys that come from that. So absolutely throughout this whole process as we're building what the school year is going to look like um, yeah, we're told you're going to have to log into this system and then take attendance to that system and then have all students do their work in that other system. Um, and, oh, and by the way, when they go to the bathroom, they have to follow these steps and procedures. And, and yeah, we've absolutely had to, uh, you know, put the brakes on it and raise up our voices and say that's not realistic. And also that's it's pretty harmful, too. I mean, when we talk about the ways in which students are going to move around buildings, um, it, it's pretty easy to lay it out on a piece of paper and say everybody's going to follow these exact steps, but, but the human experience is a lot more varied than that. Um, so having teacher voice at the table has been really important. Um, I can't say it's happened uniformly across the state. I know in my school district, yes, we did have teachers at the table um, when we were discussing reopening plans, but I do know that there are other schools out there with, Teachers just, they didn't even know until about a week ago what was going on. Um, and it, and it travels all the way up to the state level. I mean, I'm not saying that anybody's a bad actor. in this. I'm saying it, it, it's, it's a manifestation of, of this kind of punting the ball all the way down the chain. Um, you know, the Vermont NEA was left out of talks with um, the agency of Ed in terms of discussing really what reopening is going to be. I mean, I will say that we had representation on the creation of the guidance policies. But when it comes down to the nuts and bolts of the school day, um, we just weren't there. We weren't invited to the table.
1: Has that been corrected at all in recent weeks?
4: Um, in, in, in small ways, but not in, in the major ways that would really have a large impact. So definitely in, in the day-to-day with um, teachers... Preparing for what the school year is going to be like during these in-service weeks um, and this, this extra week that was uh, handed to us—it's um, happened in, in a myriad of ways in small, you know, minute ways that add up. Um, and really, that's the backbone of the union. I'm not, I'm not discounting at all. I'm saying that's exactly where it needs to happen: is um, small locals making decisions and agreements alongside of their administrators. But at the state level, um, it just keeps on getting punted. Uh, you know, it just keeps on getting pushed to the back burner, and and it's really unfortunate that we can't have one unified voice in the middle of a pandemic, and that we have all these small, fractured, differing plans. Um, which, frankly, I'm just I'm worried about. Uh, you know, we've got teachers who, you know, they live in one school district, but they teach in another, and even the communication between two districts, and and when the students get, a, and when the teacher will be home versus when their student is, is supposed to be in remote learning. it's, it's Nothing's lining up, and it's really it's concerning.
1: Tom Payer is my guest. He is a, a math teacher at the Winooski Middle and Senior High School and an uh, active member of the Vermont NEA Teachers Union, uh, talking about on our Labor Day special the, uh, the aspect of teaching that is organized labor. Uh, most of our teachers are members of the union, and they... Uh, they are uh, represented that way, and they, they think about their work in that way to some degree. And uh, we uh, are continuing with our theme on this Labor Day of the state of the labor movement, obviously the state of the teachers section of the labor movement very much in uh, in flux right now. Uh, Tom, let me ask you, um, your work day, uh, I would, are you working more hours than you were a year ago right now?
5: Uh,
4: it, it certainly feels like that. Absolutely, um, and I will say, like if I were to take a log of it, yep, probably working more hours for sure. Um, you know, they say about online learning or really anything you do online, it's, it's half the work but twice the time. Um,
1: you know, you know, it, <laughs> it, it, it really That's kind of an really odd way to put it. <laughs>
4: <and> <laughs> this this uh well, this on demand aspect of being online too, like it's always been there. You know, we get emails middle of the night kind of thing, but, but it's really been ramping up with the pandemic and, and, and just that, you know, we need to be connected to our students. We got to know that they're safe out there. Um, so really back in the spring, um, you know, people were calling on their cell phones. Um, they, were, they were driving around to neighborhoods. I mean, it was, it was all hands on deck and, and that's still happening now. Um, just organizing and, and maintaining both online and in-person learning at the same time uh, it's it's double duty, you know. It, it it's monumental and and it kind of it it brings itself into other areas. I mean, we've had this narrative um, both at the state level and from different uh, organizations where they keep on telling teachers like, uh, you got to have skin in the game. You know, they've said it about health insurance, they've said it about uh, working conditions. But you got to have skin in the game, and and I mean, we can't we just sit back and we're, and we're saying. We already give a pound of flush each year. I mean, we work through the summers. Um, we work all night long. I mean, this is this is a calling and this is a life. And and really, the union. I mean, it helps support that identity and, and who we are. And that this is an important thing to be doing. You know, the the uh, job of education. But but it's tough when we're not recognized for all the work that that is going in and and, and the sacrifices we do make um, in our own personal lives for this job.
1: It's, it's interesting to me because I, I just, I mean, it's. I don't know the, the granularity with which uh, local teacher contracts lay out the the workday and the expectations and so on and so forth. But uh, you know, i i I belonged to a union when I worked for the Associated Press, and there were certain provisions of the contract saying that if you went home at the end of your shift and then were called back in because of breaking news or something, you know, that had a certain effect and, and et cetera. Um, and I'm just wondering, uh, those work rules, uh, has the, as the union had to be really, really flexible on those? Have they been run over completely? Uh, or is the union sticking to its guns and being a real stickler on all, all of them? Or where are things settling, settling down or settling out on that?
4: Um, I mean, it's in, in a pretty incredible time to, um, be working with a contract that was created pre pandemic. Um, and to consider all the myriad, um, you know, new types of issues that we have to grapple with on the day-to-day. So, uh, certainly, in every contract or every agreement, you'll see something along the lines of, um, you know, that duties extends uh, beyond the school day to the extent that a teacher needs to uh, maintain the safety of a, of a child um, or be aware of it, and and that's a that's a you know. It's a way of saying that. Look, this job as a teacher, it, it, it is unique because because we're working with human lives, you know, and, and we're there to see them grow and to become uh, amazing young people and into adults, and um, you know that weighs heavy on a on a heart. Uh, so so they're always with us, and we're always considering them. And the work does travel beyond the school day, you know. Something about this year in terms of working with our contracts. Um, yeah, I mean, we're encountering some. Some crazy things, like, and, and, and big questions, like, should school districts support teachers with um, providing uh, Wi-Fi service to their homes if they don't have it? Um, uh, you know, so we've had to uh, really be, you know, we've had to create and work on strong relationships we've had with our admin and create these things called memorandums of understanding, which, you know, they're non precedent setting, but they're there to acknowledge that we're in a totally new environment. And there needs to be protections. And we need to really make these decisions thoughtfully. Um, it's really easy right now. I mean, as as the school day comes up tomorrow, to to just want to push through decisions, to say, okay, this is going to be how we're going to solve this problem. But we really got to think about everybody involved and, and you know, how it, does it impact the psyche of teachers, how does it impact the well-being of students. Um, so... So there has been a bit of contention in terms of uh, really just slowing down the process in a time when it feels like everything's ramped up.
1: Yeah, what's your biggest fear about getting back to school tomorrow? Well, what keeps you up
5: at night? You know,
4: I think I've I've gotten over the fear part of it. Um, certainly, my biggest fear is that somebody gets sick. Um, Anybody, anybody in the school building gets sick, and and what happens then? Um, but for me, at this point in time, uh, there's not much of a fear. I, I am excited. I'm very excited to see my students, and and you know I've been working on this all summer long, um, just you know in the background and also in the forefront at times. But considering what reopening is going to be, and I was very fearful, um, very fearful of the protection of my colleagues who have. Uh, you know underlying conditions that put them at a severe risk, but have faith that we've mitigated most of those issues. And I'm, I'm just I'm very excited to see my students tomorrow and to and to have that experience, acknowledging like, wow, we we just went through something and and we're about to go through again go through it all over again, but it's going to be better this time.
1: Yeah, I guess the uh, first time was definitely the shakedown cruise. Now maybe it'll be a little bit smoother. Uh, sailing, we hope a lot smoother sailing. I mean, the last spring, I, I think a lot of, you know, I've talked to a number of educators on the show here in recent months, and and some of them really thought last spring was pretty much lost to uh, anything approaching the normal levels of imparting education to our young people, which abs- uh, after all is the purpose of the whole thing. Tom, Tom Payer is my guest. He is uh, with the the Vermont NEA. He's a teacher, a math teacher at the at the Winooski, uh Middle and uh, Senior high school and um i'm just curious tom uh have you talked to students at all maybe last spring do you plan to this fall about kind of understanding uh, the coronavirus pandemic the coverage of it in the media the discussions about it by the president and others and uh talking to the kids about here you know here's how to apply some math skills when somebody tells you that uh, hey only nine thousand people have died purely of coronavirus uh, the rest of them had underlying conditions what does that mean etc um and and is, is this a is this a, a learning tool?
4: Uh, <laughs> I mean, certainly, yeah. We, we had conversations all last year, and that was probably one of the things that really brought us together because it, it's what was happening in the moment. Um, so when I was meeting up with my students online, yeah, that was that was something we discussed all the time. Um, and and you know, it, it's about being um, it's about being you know aware and uh, having some grace and forgiveness and having these conversations with students i don't know if i'm going to build it into my curriculum specifically looking at um coronavirus because you know i'm also aware that some of my students may have been affected by it and and, and that could be a you know a, a huge point of trauma in their lives i mean you know they may have lost somebody within the past couple months and so just being aware and having that conversation i mean that's what we do as teachers though um you know we we are we we teach really hard truths, and we and we hold very strong discussions about issues that impact all of us severely. Um, but there's there's deep learning to be, to be found there. Um, I will say, um, what my students have been very active in this year, and and it's a point of immense pride um, in the community, is um, reacting really to the to the death of George Floyd, um, and and, and, and the, the national struggle at this point to kind of tear down anti-racist uh, institutions. And, like, my students just got on the front page of the Washington Post uh, last week, you know, over their efforts to, to change the way that um, our institution operates at Winooski. And it, it, it's incredibly empowering, and certainly that's going to be one of the main focuses of the beginning of the year because this is a student-led initiative. I mean, they are going to the school board, They've got their list of demands, um, which are all totally appropriate and, and responsive and respective. Um, and that's been a very powerful experience. I think right now, um, you know, coronavirus, the state of racism in the United States, uh, we, are, we are at the peak time to have prime discussions about what is really going on in the world in ways that they can understand and have an impact.
1: Yeah, it, it is... Um I don't know in some ways the 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 environment uh, seems electrified to some degree I'm not sure exactly whether that's the right metaphor but uh certainly uh people are uh, I'm sure recognizing in your classes and others at your school the uh, the relevance of a lot of what they're studying to the world at large and so that must make uh must be rewarding to some degree uh and help you get through some some tough times uh, uh right now um and uh Tom I'm wondering, when when parents come to you and say, what the heck is is the education system doing right now, Uh, what what do you say to them? Um,
4: You know, we're we're doing what we've always done, um, and we're taking on the roles in a very public way um, that I don't think we've been acknowledged for in the past. Um, Primarily what I'm saying is that uh, it, you know, in the past several decades, uh, schools have just become these these hubs of of, of a need. you know we we provide essential human services to students and families. Um, you know we're talking about you know healthy meals um, at least twice a day, sometimes three times a day. Um, you know, providing health services um, you know, both physical and mental, um, you know, giving students the chance to really grapple with. Uh, this ever-changing world and 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 where they fit inside of it so you know when I talk to teach when when I talk to parents I just say I mean thank you for your for your understanding throughout this whole experience and everybody is struggling and and nobody's a winner at this point unless really the state were to step in and start addressing these large issues in a systemic and sustainable way that, that we've really been figuring out um, Kind of on our own as teachers and educational institutions for, for quite some time without, with very little acknowledgement. Um, that acknowledgement being both just, just public statements but also the monetary need that comes along with it. Um, and yep. the Support across different types of um, agencies.
1: So, well, Tom, I uh, unfortunately, i, I got to wrap it up here because uh, we're about out of time for this segment, but I really appreciate you joining me this morning and bringing your perspective to this uh, Labor Day special show of the Dave Graham Show. Thank you so much for joining me today.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me, and thanks for giving uh, voice to the labor today.
1: Alrighty, Let's go to a bottom-of-the-hour break for some CBS News. We'll be back with more in just a couple of minutes, folks.
3: Are you itching to get out, explore our great state? Don your mask and come to the Warren's store in the beautiful Mad River Valley. The store is open to a limited number of customers upstairs and down. Daily takeout by phone or window, but you can finally choose beer, wine, chips, etc. No appointment needed upstairs. Well-stocked with cool summer clothing, cards, candles, bags, and jewelry, puzzles and toys for all ages, art supplies, books, and interactive learning games. Are your kids bored and driving you crazy? Bring them to the Warren's store. Practicing all safe protocols. Masks required.
0: It's the Dave Graham Show on
1: WDEV. Entering into the last half hour of our program on this Labor Day morning, Monday, September the 7th, 2020. And uh, so glad to have you staying with us. Uh, We uh, hope to have uh, Steve Howard, uh, Executive Director of the uh, Vermont State Employees Association, uh, joining us for these next few minutes here on the Dave Graham Show. so far i have been unable to make contact with mr howard but uh we're going to keep trying him and uh, meanwhile i will uh, uh tell you there's an interesting article i came across this morning uh, from voice of america about uh, labor day and this is uh uh read you a little bit of this uh, just to give you a flavor i uh, i think i think people sometimes sort of lose track of uh what our holidays really mean what their origins are and uh uh here's one that uh is uh, important i think uh, working people in america do deserve a day to uh, be honored themselves we have a day to honor veterans we have a day to honor folks who have who have uh, given their lives to our military efforts around the world over the course of us history that's uh, of course memorial day we have a day to honor our our, our independence july 4th uh, and uh today is the day we honor the american worker who has after all uh built i think uh, you'd say the majority of this uh country and um so we have uh a um we we have an important uh, uh, day to observe here. America, uh, labor Day is a national holiday created to honor U.S. workers and their con- contribution to the economy, says, uh, says VOA. Many Americans use the day to celebrate the end of summer and would be surprised to know the day has its roots in the labor movement of the late 1800s. During the 1800s, the Industrial Revolution was at its peak and many Americans worked 12-hour days, 7 days a week, in harsh conditions for low pay. Even young children worked in factories. Virtually no employers provided their workers with sick days, paid vacation days, or health benefits. I'm going to stop there because I'm told we do have, uh, Steve, I just want to mention that, uh, you know, uh, one of the reasons that we do now have in many, many jobs, um, sick days, paid vacation days, health benefits is because of the labor movement. Here's one representative of the labor movement joining us. Steve Howard is, as I mentioned, Executive Director of the State Employees Union, the Vermont State Employees Association. Steve Howard, thanks very much for joining me on our Labor Day special.
5: Thank you very much. Happy Labor Day.
1: And to you. So uh, how are state workers weathering the pandemic?
5: Well, I think the. The state workforce has really been the the sort of unsung heroes of this whole effort. Um, You know, I think Governor Scott gets a lot of credit from people for his management of COVID-19, but it's really the people who work for the state who have actually kept the state running um, and who have actually kept uh, services going out to Vermonters who need them. Um, So I, I think we still have a long way to go. Uh, We have correctional officers wearing uh, garbage bags in 100-degree facilities uh, all across the state. We have a lack of PPE. We don't have much planning in terms of um, uh, modifications to buildings in the long term. Uh, So there's still a lot to be done in terms of the health and safety of the people who work for for state government.
1: And do you feel as though the... uh administration is taking this seriously. I mean, I, on the one hand, you want to say, well, they always need to do more. On the other hand, you want to say uh, nobody planned to have what's been unloaded on on our, on our institutions in the last six months. Nobody uh, could have planned for it. Um, I mean, I guess people could have planned to some extent more than they have, but the way it's worked out has just been unprecedented and uh, really not much thought about beforehand that I know of. What are your thoughts there?
5: Well, certainly, President Trump and his administration could have done more planning, and they were given a playbook uh, from the president, the previous president's administration, on on this particular uh, kind of outbreak, and they chose to ignore it. Um, it's election year; the voters can decide whether that um, is, is going to be uh, something they hold him accountable for. But I do say, I do think that. Um, what state? When managers have sought out the advice of state workers on the front lines, that's where we've had the best response. Um, where managers have imposed their views on high, uh, that's where we have the most difficult response. Uh, so, I think it's it's really to their credit, I will say, um, that they have responded in the way they have in many cases, but there's a lot of um, a lot of uh, areas for improvement um, one of the things i'd like to see the administration do is you know for a short period of time uh during the outbreak of the pandemic uh because of the insistence of the state employees union we were able to get hazard pay for uh folks who were working on the front lines and in increasing their exposure to covid the administration um, uh ended that Um, All the while, the state government was sending out checks to private sector employees. Um, And we think that is something that needs to be changed, that the administration needs to reconsider that, uh, their view on hazard pay, and needs to treat their own workers uh, with the same respect that they're treating uh, some of the private sector workers out there.
1: How long did the hazard pay last?
5: Uh, I don't have an exact uh, time frame, but I would say a couple of months.
1: And, and percentage-wise, what was it on a typical uh, worker's state worker's salary?
5: If you were working in a 24-7 facility, and those were the workers, you know, many state workers are working from home and turn their homes into uh, offices in order to keep their agencies running, but, but uh, there are thousands that went to work every day and are continuing to go to work every day, and that's particularly true in our 24-7 facility in all of our correctional facilities, in the vet's home in Bennington, um, at the psychiatric uh, care facility in Berlin. Uh, and, and because of the work they do, they are in increased, uh, you know, exposure to uh, this virus. And it's it's not something that can really be avoided. Um, you know, for a long time, and still today, we have people who, because of their personal situation, would go to work and then go to a hotel um, and not go home to their family because their children have a special medical, per, you know, condition, or their spouse may have a special medical condition, or they just didn't want to risk the health and safety of their family. So those kind of things need to be taken into consideration from decision makers who are, for the most part, working from the comfort of their home, uh, not in the facilities that they're managing. and And I think that's a really important thing. You know, and of course, we saw in the vet's home, we have an irresponsible executive director or CEO there who broke uh, state law, ignored the governor's order, went out of state, uh, traveled from to Washington, D.C. and back, and uh, never quarantined. Just decided the quarantine didn't matter for her and went into, of all places, a nursing home full of veterans. (laughs) And still she remains employed there. And it's astonishing to us that she still has a job.
1: Was there a um, any kind of a, a, a COVID related problem that resulted from that, or were were folks lucky?
5: Well, I think well, they aren't doing a lot of testing there, so we don't really know. I think the CDC is now going to order testing. Uh, there was one round of testing there at our at the VFDA's insistence, uh, which they botched. Um, but uh, we so we don't know. Nobody. Um, that nobody. There wasn't a widespread outbreak Like in Holyoke But there could have been And I think uh, the fact that we have a CEO At the vet's home uh, Who thinks she's above the law uh, Something that any one of our members If any one of our members had done that They would be put on temporary relief from duty And probably terminated She's being protected by a board of trustees uh, that wa- That's political in nature She should have been walked out of the facility And said I'm sorry We can't have somebody with such poor judgment Working for us anymore
1: Hmm. When did all this occur?
5: This was about a month ago.
1: I missed that somehow, I'm sorry to say, but uh, that does sound like yeah, a it's fairly... Really,
5: it's stunning. It's, it's really stunning. It was a major story in the Bennington Banner, and folks in Bennington, the families of the veterans, were pretty much uh, shocked by it. Um, you know, so I think on this Labor Day, we have to think about the standards by which we hold management accountable versus the way we hold... Uh, the workers accountable, the people who are actually on the front lines, and uh, the quick, um, the quick judgment that managers make to put somebody uh, into a disciplinary process and out on temporary relief from duty uh, for months and months at a time at taxpayers' expense. Um, but the way in which we don't really hold the management accountable uh, for their behavior, uh, for their decisions. Um, you know, just look at the contract with Core Civic prison in Mississippi 176 people have come down with COVID Uh, are we talking about ending that uh, contract is the legislature moving emergency legislation to end that contract nope they're just letting it happen they're going to let the administration sign another contract Um, which just goes to show you what happens when management makes bad decisions to privatize services at the expense of workers you know we get situations that are just un. um, that just aren't in line with Vermont's value. Uh, Management's not paying enough of the price for bad decisions.
1: Well, Steve Howard, I thank you for your perspective. I think uh, these are important issues you're raising. Unfortunately, we're about out of time for this segment of the show, but I, I, I do appreciate you taking some time with us on this holiday. I hope you enjoy the balance of it. Thanks so much.
5: All right, you too. Thank you.
1: We are going to wrap up our uh, Labor Day special talking to leaders of various unions from around Vermont. Uh, We started with uh, Dave Van Dusen of the AFL-CIO of Vermont. Uh, I've talked to uh, several folks from the public sector unions in our state. And uh, one more uh, guest to go. That is uh, Helen Scott. She's with United Academics. They represent uh, faculty at uh, the University of Vermont in Burlington. And uh, Helen Scott, thank you so much for joining me this morning uh oh, thank you for inviting me and uh give me uh, just a overview uh for starters a lot of our listeners are maybe not as aware of uh what's going on at UVM as uh, you would be obviously or people who follow the university uh, really closely uh, so uh from a faculty perspective what's uh, what's been happening up there with the covid-19 crisis and with uh, life in general
6: well uh I think for me as a faculty member, I've been sort of appalled by the way that the administration of the university has attacked the vulnerable on campus. Their approach to the pandemic crisis and the related economic crisis has been to impose cuts um, that really are being felt most severely by people least equipped to deal with them. So, for example, um, many lecturers were cut by 25%. So, at a time when they're actually working harder than ever, um, these teachers are, many of them actually push below a livable wage. Um, That's one thing they've done. They've also attacked positions and pay of many unrepresented staff on campus. Um, And meanwhile, there's you know there's a lot of money at the university which is not being tapped. So for me as a union member, um, I've been involved with a campaign UVM United Against Cuts, and our main slogan is Chop from the top the response to this crisis should not be felt by those who are already underpaid and overworked. Um, We should instead be tapping into the considerable wealth that lies within the university.
1: Uh, the lecturers you mentioned—these uh, are—are uh, are they adjuncts, or what's the? Tell us a little more in a more, little more detail of who these workers are and how they uh, how they relate to the university in kind of a in, in normal times, and then and then we'll talk about the uh, the cuts they've been asked to absorb.
6: Yeah, sure. Well, within academia, there is a, a two-tiered system, which is in itself um, a great wrong. Um, there are the tenured and <coughs> tenure-track faculty who have um, an expectation of, you know, continued employment. Um, they have relatively good salaries. I say relative, um, but comparatively speaking. And then there are lecturers or non-tenure-track faculty, and they get paid less for the same work. So it's it's one of the great... Um, within higher education that this inequity exists. It, it's a kind of fact of life. Um, do in, the, the lecturers... Sorry, go ahead.
1: I was just going to ask, do the lecturers uh, get benefits?
6: Yeah, we actually, the lecturers that are impacted um, are members of our union, and the union has secured you know, rights and um, benefits and protections. So compared to other universities that do not have a union, lecturers at UVM um, do have yeah, benefits and protections and a contract.
1: I see. Okay. But there was a
6: clause um, in. The, sorry, there, there was a clause in the contract that allowed um, the administration to um, cut them by twenty-five percent. Um, arguably, there's there's a reason to question the legitimacy of that, even within the terms of the contract. But the administration felt like that's something they could do. So it's and it's just um, it's just worse than an existing inequity, and it's it's very painful for the lecturers involved.
1: When when you say a cut by 25, percent you mean actual? Uh, if somebody was making you know, I, I don't know, a $1,000 a week, all of a sudden they're making 750
6: Yes, quite. I mean, their um, number of courses were cut by, by 25%. So it's unbalanced. So right now they are teaching a full load um, because the cut to their classes comes in the spring. So they're doing the same work for 25% less money. And as I said, um, for many of them, that actually pushes them below a livable wage.
1: So work, workload stays the same, but pay is cut by twenty-five percent. And Currently, when you yes. say it's what I mean, yeah,
6: with an expectation it, of a reduced co- a reduced course load in the future, but what they're experiencing right now, yes.
1: Wow. Um, and the uh, the 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 current cor- at the current course load, you're basically dividing their their they're now cut wages uh by uh hours per week that the average person works to deliver that course load
6: i don't quite understand that question <laughs>
1: well it, w- to, to get to uh to get to the idea uh, below a, I think you said these folks are making below a livable, a livable wage um right and and i guess you know i'm wondering what sort of <laughs> as some some teachers i've known have said show your math uh so, I mean, and 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 not that I'm doubting what you're saying, but I've just wondered: is 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 this calculation or is this result reached after looking at the hours per week the average uh, lecturer works, and then dividing uh dividing oh, no, those no, hours?
6: By, sorry, I see what you're saying. No, it's it's by number yep. of courses taught.
1: So, oh, I see. You know, okay. They
6: will in the in the whole year they will teach 25 percent fewer classes, but but because it's unevenly divided across the year, um, currently they're teaching a full load for 25% less pay. But Hmm. the next was okay, just to back off and give the bigger picture, it's damaging for the university as a whole um, because these classes that are being cut are very valued. They're they're valuable classes. They're, They're professors who are loved by their students. Um, And so also the remaining faculty, even tenure track faculty, are absorbing these cuts by doing more work. Um, You know, we're having to cover courses that would have been taught by lecturers. So it has a really negative impact on the whole campus. Um, And I, as as somebody who, I, I am tenured, I'm a full professor. So I'm, again, I'm relatively protected they can't just unilaterally do this to me but I have there's the knock-on effect um, which which means that I and other tenured people have to increase our course load so it's just it's 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 unjust it's damaging um, it's regressive and it's unnecessary because as I said there is a lot of money in the university um, the average salary of top administrators, these are the, you know, president, provost, deans, vice presidents, is a very large, bloated top administration. Their average salary is 250000 as opposed to an average salary of, you know, 60000 for a senior lecturer. Um, it's just not fair. <laughs> it's fundamentally unfair and unnecessary. So what-
1: we're almost out of time, but so we have to uh, answer this one fairly quickly. I hope. But uh, what do you do about it? What, what can the what can UA uh, do about this?
6: Well, the union is actually currently in negotiations, um, which I can't talk about um, right now because they're you know actively in negotiations and we're not they're not public uh, yet. But there is also a campaign, New United Against Cuts, and that consists of staff, faculty, students, and community members. And all summer we have been organising against the cuts to lecturers, but also against cuts to staff, which we haven't had time to talk about, but um, these are also very serious, both positions and wages of um, staff, many of whom already make well below a livable wage Um, Hmm. we've been organizing um, around that too and we've also been organizing um, in defense of and in support of students of color who have presented a series of urgent concerns about their safety and dignity on campus that they feel have not been met that the administration hasn't heard them
1: Lots yeah, of issues coaching. on the plate. Unfortunately, uh, Helen, Scott, uh, we're about out of time, but I do appreciate you uh, sharing some of your perspectives with us this morning. It's uh, good talking with you, and uh, I wish you uh, wish you a good uh, remainder of your holiday. We are uh, just about out of time for this edition. Thank you. Uh, we're just about out of time for this edition of the Dave Graham Show here on WDEV, and uh, stay tuned now for Bill Sayre, Common Sense Radio. Have an excellent rest of your Labor Day, everybody. We'll talk to you again tomorrow morning.